Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. This episode is brought to you by Harris Resort SoCal. Nestled against a rolling hillside and just down the road from Palomar Mountain, guests at Harris Resort SoCal can expect gorgeous views, friendly staff, available night and day to encourage everyone to have a great time. When I was there recently, I had a chance to dine at California's first and the nation's largest house kitchen. And it's true, the beef wellington and sticky toffee dessert are great. The restaurant is inspired by the hit TV show and features a menu approved by the Michelin star celebrity chef, Gordon Ramsay himself. Hope to see you all at Harris Resort SoCal in 2024. My name is Marcelino Chuong. I, am, um, I was born in 1957 in Manila, Philippines. My father was Vietnamese and my mother was French. My father was a Vietnam War era uh, diplomat for the Republic of Vietnam. I grew up in Washington, D.C. when my dad was posted to uh, Washington, D.C. And in 1961, he was called back to Saigon because President Kennedy had been elected and wanted to uh, increase U.S. help to South Vietnam. Welcome to the Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Nguyen. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history, and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all of... When I was uh, 18, uh, and uh, the war in Vietnam ended in uh, April 75, I was studying uh, my first year. I was in my first year of uh, political science in Paris, um, where I uh, continued to study. And uh, I became French in, when I was 18, because until then we, ha we had South Vietnamese nationality. Um, after my studies, um, I did my military service in France. And that's where I began to consider uh, art, or shall we say graphic art or graphic novels. It's called bande dessinée in France. Um, as a possible career, but it took me another year of studies um, before I, uh, after after teaching for one year, English in France, which is a, an all uphill job in those days and probably still is. Uh, I, I quit teaching and became an artist, but I became a completely self um, self taught. Self self-taught artist, uh, which was a hard job. The first years were very difficult, but I struggled and held on and slowly uh, acquired the skill needed to catch up with the others because the level in France was very high indeed. Uh, graphic novels or bande dessinée, as they're called, BD, the letters B and D, were a very, very big thing in France and still, still is. Uh, where in, in the States or in England, pop music uh, drew many talents, attracted many talents. 
In France, it was more arts like bande dessinée, uh, which would uh, attract uh, young talents. And so I made my way uh, in illustration also, and in, and in graphic art, graphic novel, sorry. Uh, and these, my latest book, uh, which came out last October in France and has just been released on October the 3rd in uh, North America, is called 40 Men and 12 Rifles, uh, Indochina 1954. This time it's fiction. One might even call it a faction because it's based on a lot of facts, but with fictional characters who themselves are, of course, based on a lot of people uh, who, who lived during the uh, French Indochina War. But the point of view I chose was to be on the Vietnamese side and, and especially on the Vietnamese communist side not out of, not because this is my political affiliation, but to try to show to the French readers and now the English-speaking readers to get to to to, sh to show them to to give them a glimpse of what it was what it must have been on the other side, the. Um, certain heroism and sacrifice and, and bravery of many Vietnamese people who chose to to fight on that side, but also uh, the flip side of the coin, the, the indoctrination, the lack of uh, freedom of expression, uh, and also a very important thing, uh, the very... Uh, pervasive Ma Maoist uh, influence, Chinese influence, which was very much uh, played down or even um, kept secret during throughout both, uh, Vietnamese conflicts. It is only these recent years that uh, some research has been conducted, quite often by Chinese researchers working in the States, who have had access to some files in, in China and who have made it, who are beginning to make it, make it clear, make it clear how, how far into, how, how strong the Chinese influence was. The Soviet influence we knew, but the Chinese influence was kept secret for obvious reasons because it was felt uh, preferable to give the, the world, the outside world, the impression that the, the communist Vietnamese were doing this all by themselves. Whereas we in the South, uh, it was well known that we were uh, supported by the Americans. Well, so were the North Vietnamese to an extent which had been unknown uh, until now. In the United States, in the diaspora, the Vietnamese <clears throat> community, we are, you know, it's taboo to to really from a southern uh, government um, children to even flirt or or go near anything northern Vietnamese it's so taboo to to utter those thoughts that uh, we could sort of get into the minds of, of a North Vietnamese fighters or a group of fighters 
did you ever have to put up with uh, any diaspora uh, contingencies that were anti-viewpoints uh, uh, that, that you've taken in the graphic novel? I really understand what you're talking about. I'm aware of this. Uh, this is probably... Um, this is typical of uh, the Vietnamese diaspora in the States. Yes. And I well understand they're, they're, they're being allergic to anything to do with the communists. I quite understand that. I have many, I have an aunt and many cousins in San Jose and practically all, all over North America, including Canada, who, uh, who left in, in difficult circumstances quite often some of them as both people. So I'm quite aware of the uh, of how painful it can be for them. But you must try to uh, see things from uh, the, the, the perspective in France. But in France, the Vietnamese com community is smaller and is, it is probably older. Uh, in France, the Vietnamese came in, to make things simple, in two waves. They came uh, from very early on during the French colonial period, usually to study. Uh, I'm talking about uh, people like my father who came to study in France. They were they had scholarships. My father was the son of a schoolteacher. He was by no means rich, but he was a clever student and hardworking, uh, and he he got a, a scholarship. So did his two brothers and, and cousins too. They came either to France or to Belgium uh, to study. And so the community, the Vietnamese community first was formed by, let's call them scholars. There are many of them were, were scientifics working for medicine or, or other uh, trades. Um, then during the wars, a lot of people moved over to France because, because they wanted at least one person in the family to be safe and to be able to, to help, I suppose, from, from afar. And then, as you know, the, the, second, the second wave came after 75 with the boat people. And sometimes these were Vietnamese of classes, less educated, shall we say, but who made their way in French society. And I, I, would, I suppose most Vietnamese people in France stayed away from politics uh, for, because they, they wanted to make their place in France because they felt that they had to be discreet about that. And also because in France, Many, many French, not only progressives, but many French had a sort of sympathy or empathy for the, the communist side, which they saw as less corrupt. They had a very romantic image of Vietnamese communism. And I think that there, they may, there may have been a, a very strong, or although secret or latent, uh, guilt complex after the colonization in France, so that the sons and daughters of French 
colonizers or soldiers or civil servants or uh, tradesmen, tradespeople, had a guilt complex in, in the 50s and 60s, and they tended to, uh, to see the other side with exaggerated uh, indulge, uh, indulgence is a French word. Uh, they were lenient, lenience. They were very lenient with the Vietnamese communists, and they were very strict and very crit crit critical of the South Vietnamese uh, government. Yeah, Marcelino, I, I want to really emphasize this topic because um, it is an important aspect of, of Vietnamese history that the the first wave was in the 30s and 40s, would you say, um, from France, uh, from Vietnam to France? Probably in small numbers. In small, yeah, in small numbers, the scholars uh, that the uh, Zhu Hao, uh, which is uh, they they've gone to, uh, to study, uh, leave the country, go to France. I actually have interviewed a few people, and it is so interesting that the older generation that were in their eighties and nineties, perhaps that did make it to France in those days, speak about their sort of their infatuation with early communism uh, from a very socialist perspective from France. And these support these support personnel that were supporting the Viet Minh or the, 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 the Vietnamese in Vietnam in the North were very idealistic in the way that they approached politics and they wanted to see Vietnam free from the French and, and colonial rule. And as the war uh, progressed, it seems like they they became much more discontent and disenfranchised with the with the current uh, in the 70s and 60s with the um, with the uh, uh, Vietnamese communist government. And I think the real big kicker for a lot of them was when after the war happened, the way that the um, the political prisoners were kept under re-education camps that really divided the French communists of uh, Vietnamese that that lived in uh, in France. And this is what I'm learning that it's it's very it's very subtle. Uh, they're branded as communists, um, the, the French Vietnamese. But in reality, it's a much earlier sort of nationalistic uh, movement. I, I, am I correct here? <clears throat> um, there's one thing one must understand about France and, and probably Italy. France and Italy are the two countries in Europe who, after the Second World War, um, saw the emergence of the two, the, most, the two most powerful communist parties in Europe. Spain was another problem because, um, as you know, there had been the war in 1930s, from 1936 to 39, and Franco won. He eliminated all communists, and he reestablished a we can say pretty reactionary regime, uh, whereas in, in, in France there was the occupation, the Nazi occupation, and in, in Italy there was the fascist regime, which, which, fell and was, which fell towards the end of the war. So both France, the state in France collaborated with uh, the German occup occupants, and in Italy there was fascism. So after uh, the Second World War, both countries have been, um, 
how do you say, uh, uh, compromised with the extreme right, okay? So after, in the immediate aftermath of that war, everyone was left-wing in France. And the Communist Party was seen as, because Stalin had led this incredible resistance against the Nazi, uh, conducting the war for several years alone, uh, and having lost so many people, he had this huge prestige. Prestige, and this is personal and a personal opinion. He he's, he was the new god because at the same time, Catholicism, both in in France and perhaps uh, in Italy, um, decreased in in its audience. Probably because this modern age. Um, created that, and it was replaced in France and in Italy, both very Catholic countries before that, but Latin countries. And the Latin countries seem to need this strict discipline because they are not disciplined, they are Latin, you know. They need this strict discipline, this Bible, this doctrine, and also this brotherhood. Uh, which a church brings, and also a party brings of the kind uh, of the communists. They have a Bible, you know, the, the capital or, you know, the, the manifesto, and it's a brotherhood too. So this brotherhood, this, let's call it a, a sect, this, this, this sect, uh, this community replaced the humanist Christian community of uh, the interwar period and of centuries before, because I can't, why, why wasn't there a communist party in England or in Germany or in, or in Northern Europe? Because they're Protestant. And I also think that they have, they have this natural discipline and they don't need such, such a strict rule uh, because they, they have that in them. In France, you have to put a policeman behind every Frenchman if you want him to respect the, the road code, you know, the, uh, the road regulations. Well, for, for me, that's an explanation. So that when, you were, when I arrived in France in 1972, coming from England, this was just four years after May 68 and, you know, the, uh, the, the events in May 68, the sort of left-wing revolution uh, in France. And you still feel that atmosphere. All the, if you were a nice guy, you were left wing. This replaced being a Christian, I would say. Mm. If you were kind-hearted, if you wanted uh, the the former colonies to um, develop and be free, you were left wing. It was just as as easy as that and as superficial. And I find that the and and the the, the French. Communist Party was very influent. In 1945, 25% of the French voted for the French Communist Party, and many intellectuals and scientists were in that party because it became a, a new family. They were not lonely anymore, and everyone was there. All the intellectuals, the famous guys like Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir and Yves Montand and so many others, they had to be communist at one point or the other. And it, it took ages in France. It took, it took Prague 68 
Uh, it took, uh, before that, uh, 1956, the revelations of the Khrushchev uh, report for slowly French communists to realize, some of them to realize that something was rotten in the states of, 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 of Russia, of Soviet Union, and of China. And when they became wary of Soviet, the Soviet Union after 1956 and 1968 in Prague, before that, in 1949, a new star had arisen in the East, and this was Mao Zedong. And that was so romantic. Look at this young guy with his long hair. He even writes poetry. That that is 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 something very uh, uh, seducing, uh, seductive for the French intellectuals. This guy writes poetry. So did Ho Chi Minh. We're told it was easy for these leaders to have someone write poetry for them and say, "This is mine," you know, because this is very effective in intellectual France. So I would say. I would be more pessimistic than you and, and say it took them a hell of a lot of time to realize that North Vietnam was a, was a communist dictatorship like any other. It, it, we had to wait until 1980s, the, 1980, the early 1980s, when the boat people started flooding into Europe. And we heard at last the terrible news about the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia. But for years... It was it was complete. Most only the extreme right or the right wing in France understood us as people from South Vietnam. The left completely uh, turned their backs on us. We were reactionaries. They could not understand that we were much closer to them than they thought, and much closer to them than the average North Vietnamese guy. But yeah. this, you know, this is France. This yeah. is. This, this context is so important for for the current generation, second generation diaspora like myself, because uh, for so many years, it's we only kind of get one dimension um, as children of the southern uh, Vietnamese government. We, we, we see things in a very black and white and it's well, I'm, I'm speaking for myself. Uh, it's, it's generally has been um, a tough road to see things in their nuances unless we, we roll up our sleeves and we get you know into the information and, and learn about these things. Um, it has far so, so so much far implications because um, there are writers now that are coming out of Vietnam uh, that write in English, about the northern Vietnamese experience, uh, like Nguyen Phan Quay Mai, uh, uh, as she writes about the, the mountain sings, and she writes about Dust Child, which is the Amerasian experience. And she can she's actually able to see it from many different sides and the humanity that that's required uh, to really paint the picture of, of a really uh, basic, uh, comprehensive picture of, of what went on, on on in the north. But all of that being said, it's, it's crazy to to sit here and and um and and talk to you about this because your graphic novel um addresses um a point of view from the the the, the northern side but you are a son of the the southern side and i'm wondering um how did you get to understand so much history of vietnam um and it it shows in your novel in your graphic novel but you know, I, I come usually for the art, you know, uh, a book that somebody writes, but you have like this whole history professor like uh, uh, 
personality and it, and it's really interesting it's i think it's a family thing my father was a very educated man uh he studied political science uh, i went to the same school as him in paris a place called institute the the, the institute of political studies it's a sort of uh people who who go on sometimes to work for the state um will go first to this school you get the best teachers there uh and you get the opportunity to uh to access really good specialists uh it doesn't mean the students are brilliant but the specialists are there so i benefited from that my father had all these all the books we had at home unfortunately my vietnamese is very poor so i could only read in french and uh, and uh, english but we all we had all these books at home and i would i would read them or i read them later on and also i benefited very much from speaking with my father i must say that i have an uncle uh called jung bulan who is now a retired professor of history at hawaii he used to to be a professor at, at the university of hawaii but i must say he doesn't much approve of me because he believes that i'm as he puts it mixing with the wrong crowd he believes that i'm my my stance is much too right wing for him um too bad you know i'm not a child anymore so uh, we we both have our different visions i respect his uh and i have mine um uh, a lot of studying a lot of reading and also a lot of meeting with uh vietnamese people either in france or in, or in vietnam it it happens that some of my father's closest cousins uh were on the other side i think this is more happened more often than than Very some common. people would admit Very all right well, i'm reassured that you sh- you should say that because i find that they people who can't understand one being i'm interested on in the communist side just to to explode it from the inside as it were <clears throat> i don't <clears throat> sorry i don't um i don't like that side at all it's just to show that the the problem with um communism is that it advances behind very uh, seductive ideals like independence that's how can you resist freedom oh fantastic uh social justice well, i'm i'm not against a bit of that it depends how it's done how it's conducted how you get there but if it if it can be done peacefully i'm all for social justice more equality okay let's try that you see the advanced the program is very appealing it's almost um impossible to resist especially when you're young and idealistic that is there is the rub there's the problem because that's just uh publicity it's it's just selling a product but the real product you receive does not correspond to the description i've thought a lot about that too 
what you just said, you know, the sheen, the outside is is very PR friendly for the participants in their early lives. They're they're young and they're hungry. I mean, really hungry. And they're looking for direction. And this propaganda machine offers the best thing. But here's where I, I, I really wonder, is it a function of the culture of um, human beings to just become corrupt? under a system of totalitarian, of a authoritarian uh, uh, control. And, you know, you can you can sell and you can believe in the selling of this propaganda as 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 a machine. But the practical side of all of this is somebody is in control, which is one or, you know, the guys at the top are in control and they can dish down painful edicts. They can they can really make your life difficult. But is that really a system of um, a, 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 like Mao if or Stalin? You know, they they had these ideas, but ultimately they really took advantage of these ideas, knowing that they were selling something beautiful. But but there was something much more darker and sinister uh, happening inside of Mao, inside of Ho Chi Minh or Stalin. Do do you think it's more of of um, you know something that they use knowingly to to lure the masses in? They know what they're doing. They are manipulators. They they are they love. You have to love that to be a leader like that. Somewhere you can be a good leader, but you have to like to manipulate is pejorative. But you you love, you want to lead people, all right? Well, to lead people, you direct them more or less. I think so. I think the leaders were were knew what they were doing. Stalin certainly knew what he what he, what he was doing without any doubt. Maoist, I suspect too. Ho Chi Minh, quite likely. I the 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 advantage of these guys was that they were they surfed on uh, on the idea of independence. They surfed on the idea of free the people. From its, its its chains, they surfed on these these huge waves, this this huge longing for for a better life, and it is much easier to attract young idealists, young romantic idealists, as most youngsters are, with beautiful ideas. It's, it's quite easy in a, in a way, especially if there's a nanny at the gate or in your, on your land. From another country, it's quite easy somewhere. It's risky at first, of course, but it's easy. Now, to avoid corruption, to come back to your first point, I think the only way is a pluralistic system, political system. Without pluralism, there is no control. Look at the states. People are beginning. Some people are saying it's, it's an imperfect democracy. Well, it's better than nothing. And uh, the Democrats and the uh, Republicans, some people say it's the same thing. Well, I don't really agree. And at least there's some way for the, the American people to change. Um, last elections, there was a change. Now new ones are coming up. There might be other change, at least the people have the power to vote. And I'm very disappointed when I see young people saying, oh, why bother? You know, well, they'll see one day when there is no longer a pluralistic society, then they will understand 
uh, how, how unpleasant it is. I often tell the French when I'm in conferences or, you know, books, what would you say if you had had the same government since 1945 or 1954, always the same party in power. Would you like that? Would you like the, the Gaullists to have been in power from 1945 till today or the socialists? No, you wouldn't. You're fed up after two years of the, with your present president. So, and, and left-wing people in France uh, will support, well, used to. Now they're much more discreet about that. But they would support a regime which obviously had not planned for, um, you know, um, alternance. An alternative. An alternative. That's then. That's not in their plans. How can they? How can they accept that when they get fed up after you know a few months with their government? Well, that's what we have in Vietnam. In some zones of Vietnam, which became. Uh, controlled by the Viet Minh as soon as 1945, they have only known the communist regime since then. We wouldn't stand for that. So I think that although the pluralistic democracy is imperfect, it's cumbersome, it's annoying, but it's the only way to control corruption because there's, you know, you control, you 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 keep an eye on your on the opposition, what they're doing. I can't see any other way of, of controlling things. How did you get into becoming an artist? Uh, you know, you're at your political science uh, student, and how did you, you know, switch to flip flip the switch over to uh, art? It was a long uh, road. Uh, when I was young, I would uh, I would draw, you know, like lots of kids, and I had this small gift, and. In fact, uh, my the only drawings that had have, have survived were the drawings I would I would make in uh, Saigon, and which my mother would uh, slip into the envelope, the airmail envelope she was sending to her parents in France, in the house to the house where I now in Brittany, and my grandparents, my maternal grandparents, my my French grandparents kept all these letters. Wow. Uh, which were very useful for me when I needed to reconstruct our daily lives uh, in Washington, or even before that in Manila, or in Saigon, or in, or, in, or in London. Because my mother would write practically every week. In those days, obviously, there was no email, so everything had to be handwritten. Phoning was expensive. And thanks to that, this is a sort of family archive in which my mother mentions her, her daily um, preoccupations with our school and that, you know, health children, but also mentions her husband's activities. My, my father was uh, President Ian's Ziem's interpreter for a long time. Every day he would go to the palace and then he became uh, simultaneously director of Vietnam Press. So he would talk about his job, not secret stuff, but he would talk about it a lot with my mother, and and my mother would be afraid of uh, of you know uh, bombs in town, things like that. Uh, so I drew as a child, and how, how did your mom and dad meet? Oh, they met in in Paris when my when my father arrived in 1948. Very shortly after, 
he was studying at the Sorbonne. He, he was reading French and English literature. And my mother was reading English literature. So the legend goes that they met. My mother was a very good-looking young girl. And my father was quite handsome. And he was a very scholarly type. And he, she was struggling with a Latin uh, version. And because my father had been to school in Hue, uh, in a school called La Providence, which was, there were French missionaries, uh, he was quite good at Latin, which helped him in his exams, and he offered to help her. That's how they sort of, he began to court her. And they married in December 1950, during the during the Vietnam, uh, the, the Indochina War. So I, I would draw, draw it at home, but a typical... But as a, in typical Vietnamese families, we were expected to be good at school. Uh, well, in our in our house, anyway, we were expected to get top marks. And art, what's that? You know, no one ever heard about that, and no one bothered with it because it, it didn't seem to be to lead you to any uh, real profession. We were sort of educated immigrants. No one was waiting for us with a red carpet. So my father had to work really hard after he left the embassy uh, to keep us uh, going to school, etc. And so I, I, was, uh, I was good at art, but uh, I, it never occurred to me that this could become a job. My mother was very artistic, really artistic, and now I realized that she was probably a frustrated artist, right. but she... She was also a very busy, uh, an overwhelmed housewife with four children, struggling against a manic depressive uh, condition to make things worse. Mm. So uh, I went through my studies because my father expected to me, me to do these things. And I, I also found them very fascinating, I must say. I enjoyed studies, although they were hard. Uh, I, I'm, they, they built me, you know gave me confidence. And it was only progressively, especially during my military service where I didn't have much to do. I was in the Navy, I was a, a subaltern officer, uh, a midshipman, and we didn't we had a lot of spare time on our hands and free meals every day. So I did a lot of drawing and writing. That's where the idea uh, was born that I might this is what I'd like to do. But I had, when I left the Navy and, and said to my father, I'd like to go into comic art, uh, he looked at me. I, I might have said to him, I want to be a, a pole dancer or something. Uh, and, and he said, I'm ready to help you to study another year, one further year to take this competitive exam called l'agrégation, very prestigious thing in France. My father was a typical Vietnamese man of letters, you know, uh, working for the state was the most noble thing to do. And I took the exam, I got it, taught for a year, a year I hated it, and then I allowed myself to launch into this completely new bohemian career, which was very hair-raising at, at, at first, I can tell you. This episode is brought to you by Songkai Distillery, my only go-to gin company. Established in 2018, Sumkai Distillery is Vietnam's first gin distillery founded by Daniel Nguyen, a Vietnamese American from Southern California. No matter how many people I have at my parties, we are always pouring Sumkai gin. 
Songhai Jin is handcrafted in small batches and prioritizes using botanicals and ingredients that are native and heirloom to Vietnam. The result is a product uniquely Vietnamese in taste and aroma. Songhai is now growing to include rice wine and traditional Vietnamese herbal liqueurs similar to Amaro. Songhai prides itself in Vietnam from the farmers who grow the fruits and herbs to the artists behind the artwork and design. Songhai is a community effort of people who are proud to be Vietnamese and collectively embody the spirit of Vietnam. Now, because I really found it difficult. Yes, I, I can only imagine. But I, I also am curious. Um, you left Viet, or you, you were of 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 a, a pretty decent age of of memory when uh, the fall of Saigon happened, and uh, your father's position in the government was very uh, very high up, and life must have changed uh, tremendously for you uh, when you were in your teenage years as a result of the the change of government at that time. Uh, you mean the, the change of government in '75 or earlier on? In '75. Uh, at that time, my father had uh, had left diplomatic service for 11 years. Oh, okay. And in '70, after having, you know, he, he would have three or four jobs at the same time, like many Vietnamese people in the states, uh, intellectual work, translations, things like that. But still. Uh, and then he in the 70s he he was he succeeded uh he was recruited by one of the un um, uh, organizations based in london dealing with maritime matters you know and he became a translator there and had a much better um, salary and things were e much easier when when saigon when the south fell he was i was in paris he was in london he was very shattered, I'm sure, uh, for for uh, for a long time uh, afterwards. Quite depressed, I think. But typically, as a typical Vietnamese father, he would not really express these things with us. But I know for sure that he was. Um, he would send money and parcels. We would send parcels and money to Ong Ba Noi in a. In, uh, in, in at that point, they, they had moved to Yung Tao, mm -hmm. uh, Cap Saint Jacques, French days, uh, east of Siong, where it was more quiet. Uh, my uncle, John Boudin, uh, had opened a convenience store in California. He had been a vice minister of information under President Thieu. So things were, were, were tough. Uh, Morally, uh, my father was extremely uh, sad of all that, but kept it to himself. Kept it to himself, because in those days, especially in 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 France or or even England, very few people showed sympathy for the for the government of South Vietnam. There were some, but very few who understood the South Vietnamese. And could just simply understand. It's not very difficult to understand, but it was like that in those days that that the Viet, some Vietnamese could not could not want to live in, in a communist regime. What many people did not know, and this is what I'm showing in my story, was that many uh, Vietnamese had had run into the Viet Minh in the early days, in 45, 46. 
because at that time, the Viet Minh presented itself as an open front, at a very wide front. Just think of that in the first posters of the Viet Minh, which has, some of which have survived, you can see, you know, um, figures represent all walks of life. There's even a priest right. in, in a to show how wide they were recruiting. This was a front. This was a federation. And progressively, uh, as the years went by and the war hardened, the the revolution, the the, the resistance, the resistance fighters of the early days began to realize that this was not only the independence, this was revolution now we're talking about under the Chinese influence and the whole atmosphere was changing. So these people knew about the Viet Minh and many of them chose to go down south in 1944-45 and these people knew what they were talking about because they had been in the Viet Minh. Uh, Tiu had been in the Viet Minh for a few months, President Tiu. Uh, there were many like him. So fascinating, that uh, that time period. Now, do you, um, you, you grew up uh, outside of Vietnam predominantly, um, and in France, uh, you, you know, you don't look Vietnamese. I mean, if, if I may, may say that without being offensive, uh, that you no. don't look... <laughs> You, you don't look Vietnamese and you have uh, a first name that's Marcelino and a last name that's very Vietnamese. What was it like for you growing up in your early years uh, traveling, I mean, or being living, living outside of Vietnam? Uh, I, I also have a, a Vietnamese uh, first name, which is Luc, Luc. So my Vietnamese name is Trung Luc. We all have a Vietnamese name because uh, after 1955, all children who had a Vietnamese father had to have a Vietnamese first name. They didn't want George or Jacques or Michel or all that. That was over. So we all had a Vietnamese first name. Mine was my brother was called Ai Ni. My sister is called Ai. We all had two names, but we were at home. We were called by our, our French name. My name comes from the Philippines, Marcelino. We were like. Uh, I was given the name of the street we lived in. What did it feel like growing? Uh, well, when I was a child, I looked much more Vietnamese than I do now, I think, much more. And there was no mistake for people around me in England. For them, I was Chinese or Japanese or I was Asian without any, any uh, doubt about that. Um, I, I, I suppose I started to look more French as I grew up, perhaps. Um, how? What did it feel like? You felt different. You, I really felt Vietnamese. Just, I'll tell you a, a funny story. I was a, I was a British Boy Scout when I was young. I was uh, something like eight years old or something. I wore the uniform, the green uniform and a cap, and the whole thing. I was a Cub Scout in Wimbledon. We lived, we lived in Wimbledon, South London. And one day, the day came for me to um, take my oath as a British Boy Scout. Uh, and when the, uh, the scout leader uh, saw me come up, he said to me, uh, what sort of uh, government do you have in your country? Because for him, it was obvious that I wasn't English. I said, well, we have a president. 
They said, well, you can take your oath to president of your country. So believe it or not, I took my oath as a, as a British Boy Scout to the president of Vietnam. Uh, that was President Thieu already in those days. Wow. Because I, this was being very fair play, typically English, you know. Uh, I it. could have taken my oath to the Queen of England. I wouldn't have minded. But, but this, to show you that I looked Vietnamese when right. I was a kid. So it felt it was okay most of the time. Once in a while, it would be called a, a ching chong, you know, in the in the, the playground, and people would pull their eyes. And actually, my brother, who, who my older brother, who looked, he looked, he could, he looked a bit like Dustin uh, Hoffman. He didn't look Asian. He could have been South American or something. At one point, there was a sort of rivalry between us, and, and he could be quite nasty sometimes and I would probably get on his nerves obviously and he would look at me and and part his part his nostrils with his fingers and and his his lips indicating to me that I looked like a gook you know wow of course I didn't like that at all but I had to live with that uh, now in, in 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 England and in France sometimes you would very rarely, but you would run into someone sometimes who would insult you, you know, you gook, you something like that. Uh, I was very sensitive to that, but I've never, I've never looked for someone else to fight for my causes. If someone was really obnoxious with me, I would fight back and make it quite clear to them that, you know, uh, I like that what they were saying. For one unpleasant word there were 10,000 extended hands and friendly people that's my that's what I believe you know what does it mean to be Vietnamese to today it means a lot to me uh, although uh, annoyingly my my Vietnamese language is is poor I, I have the basics I've studied the basics from books you know in cassettes but I just uh, don't have the opportunity to practice enough and I'm much better at German than, than, than Vietnamese. Uh, when I go to Vietnam, I love speaking with my Parisian accents. I don't think it's that bad, but I need, a, I need to be the, in the atmosphere. And I'm shy of talking to people in, in the West with my Vietnamese accent. I'm afraid they're going to snicker. But I, it's very important to me for my work. I've, I've um, found much inspiration uh, in Vietnamese history or Vietnamese culture for my for my books, uh, either children's books or these graphic novels I have done in my later uh, life. Um, for me, it's a huge source of inspiration. Uh, I even annoy sometimes my uh, my children uh, who are really basically French because they find that I talk about Vietnam too much. So I sort of Pipe down now. No, they, they think I talk about the Vietnam Wars too much. That's to be more precise, which is true. It, they were an obsession for me. I think I think we were far more traumatized, even from afar, than we would admit to ourselves. It's not because we were living. Of course, I'm not saying we suffered as many people suffered right. far more than we were safe. Okay, but. Mentally, yeah, uh, I would identify. And today, even today, I find that um, 
You know, when I did my military service in France, I wanted to do it. I felt it was my duty as a, as a Frenchman, where in those days, many people of my generation were trying to avoid it, you know, find some way of, of not doing it. And you were considered, you were almost considered sort of a, I don't know, a sort of right-wing conservative if, if you were intent in, on doing your military service. I wanted to do it. I felt it was a duty. And I also felt really strongly that as a citizen, if you don't want to be dominated, you have to take part in the defense of your country. And this came from my Vietnamese history. Uh, I really believe that. Um, and I still do. I, and I, I, tell, I often tell youngsters, you don't realize you, you've been at peace for so long right. in Europe that you have forgotten completely the danger of being dominated. And, well, uh, I haven't. Um, they must think I'm an old boy, you know, but never mind. It really, it's, it's very important for me. Yeah. It also, as I... It's also a source of interest, I suppose, for, for people, uh, I hope. Um, you're, you're perhaps a bit exotic. It's, there is, a, there is a, definitely an upside to it also. I it, cook a lot. You know, yeah. that's, that makes friends. Well, you cook, do a lot of Vietnamese cooking, French and Vietnamese cooking. In 40 Men and 12 Rifles, uh, can you talk about how you came up with the title of the book, why why did you name it that, and a little bit about uh, how the book came about. Uh, well, it has a lot to do with what we have been talking about. Um, I was annoyed by, um, when I was young, when I arrived in France, I was annoyed at being, and, and this lasted for a long time, I was very annoyed at being lectured by, by usually progressive French people who were telling me who were the goodies and who were the baddies in Vietnam. And for them, obviously, the goodies were Hanoi. You know? And I, it would really get on my nerves because 90.9% of the time they had never been to Vietnam. But here they were lecturing me on who, were the, who, who, who was right and who was wrong. That really annoyed me terribly. And at the same time, when you listen to the French extreme right, they could be quite. Uh, I thought. I thought they had their vision of um, Vietnamese Viet Men or Vietnamese uh, resistance uh, fighters was um, incomplete. Was caricatural? How do you say yeah. that? Caricatural. Caricature was a caricature. Yeah. They would always depict them as fanatics, you know, a bit like uh, North Koreans, you know. Um, and I would think, no, oh, no, things are, are much more subtle than that. Um, um, the Viet Minh often attracted very idealistic and, and brave. And, and uh, when you uh, delve into the question of the Vietnamese conflicts in France, you're sure very sure to very quickly hit the extreme left or the so-called extreme left, because I don't believe the, the French communists are particularly left-wing. Uh, for me, they're quite close to, they're very conservative in a way. And 
And you also hit the French extreme right very quickly because the French extreme right was born from former servicemen in Indochina. Many of them, the first, you know, the first creators, foundators, the founders, sorry, of the French extreme right party were former, former professional soldiers in Vietnam, in Indochina. Why so? Because they believed and they were, they were certainly right in that. They, they were the first to confront uh, Asian communist, communist, communism in, in, in Asia um, and a new form of war, revolutionary war, warfare, right? Anyway, uh, there was a lot of caricature on both sides. There was a lot of romanticism on the left side, on the left wing, and a lot of caricature on the right wing. And for me, it was helpful to have spoken to these members of my family still living in Vietnam. Many of them have died, unfortunately, of my father's generation, who gave me their point of view. Now, I wasn't necessarily convinced with what they were telling me, especially when you look, you, you would look at the cracks in the ceiling and yeah. poverty around you. You would think, uh, for, for all that, all that sacrifice for what? For this? <laughs> but they were sincere. They were honest. None of them were rich. None of them were corrupt because I could see no trace of wealth anywhere. So this meant for me that they were sincere. But it was interesting to see that these were sincere people. Uh, they were they they gave a good um, image. Okay, so my plan for this my the idea for this book was to show that um, there were many generous people on the communist side, uh, brave and and ready to uh, sacrifice many things. But it, be, be, beware, it's not because a people out of patriotism and propelled by a, a desire for independence can show great bravery and great sacrifice that the cause that they are ready to die for is necessarily good. This is what the, dictator, the dictatorships will have you believe. Look how many people have died for us. Yeah. This means we... Our cause is fantastic. Of course it isn't. 20, 20 million Russians died bravely, or many of them. So for Stalin, this doesn't make Stalin more acceptable. Uh, the Germans died bravely for their country in millions for a, a maniac called Hitler. And, and in China and in Vietnam, it's the same thing. Um, it's not because people are ready to die in their millions that a cause is sanctified let's get rid of that idea it's very uh dangerous to believe that because these regimes often count on that they count on the empathy they are able to arise to arouse sorry uh in kindly western audiences with kind-hearted people who are full of good intentions of course they're suffering but their suffering also that ought to be reminded. And I had to do this by delving into the into the, the Vietnamese side, by visiting it, by by you know walking with them. 
You, and some were good and some were bad. You have a lot of but, courage to approach uh, a novel in that way um, because uh, I, I think it takes a lot of courage to to take on a, an opposition sort of perspective uh, that, you know, you and I come from a place where it's a very, uh, it's a very protected space, I think, especially in, in America with the Vietnamese American community. Well, I hope they will. I hope they will... Um, understand to, to read uh, to try reading you know before judging the book by its cover i know how painful it is for them but uh, uh they 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 must i was they would they the elders must remember that a lot of their cousins and fathers and uncles and aunts and and, and family at some point were in the Vietnam too and and many of them disappointed and disenchanted and they left but we I need to show the world what it was like yeah and i uh, think many times it's like we are not we don't appreciate the humanity of, of the sides that are in opposition to us that it's just human beings on the other side as well and um they are in serious um hot water when it comes to their judgment and doing the right thing and you know their convictions sort of blind them to do things that are uh, just not things that uh, will coincide with the, the the ways that we view things in the South uh, government, in the South Vietnamese government. What I'm what I'm what I'm trying to do with this book is showing that we were legitimately fighting the communists. This is what they're like. Of course, they're nice people there. It doesn't it doesn't change the reality that this is a very oppressive system. I don't know if you've ever read a book by George Orwell called A Homage to Catalonia. No, really I, know good. I know the book, yes. I love that book. He was he was uh, in the war in Spain on the uh, left-wing side with the uh, anarchists. He described the, 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 the Spanish, the Spanish Communist Party was ordered by Stalin in 1939 to um, eliminate the anarchists because Stalin had decided to sign a pact with Hitler. So we had to finish that war in, in Spain, all right, to have a free hand and to become very chummy with Hitler, which they became very chummy with Hitler. So Orwell describes how kind and brave and generous the Spaniards were, his comrades. But I mean, that doesn't... Um, excuse anything have you um, have you uh looked into uh any book tours in the united states uh in the vietnamese community it's very extremely difficult not to say impossible for me to get away because my wife is uh, very disabled and i am her main helper uh and for me it's it's very difficult to get good even for an afternoon it, it requires a bit of organization wow um how do we find the book here in the u.s i suppose it's in in you can order it from your bookshop it's it's for sale uh, you know order it on amazon from, from your bookshop or from that place of course but I always say, try to get your bookshop to to work. You know, they can get it in two days. You know, right. it's nice to keep these bookshops uh, alive. If possible. I, I agree. Oh, what about the Vietnamese government? How how do they view the work that you do? I really don't know. Um, the first two books 
uh, are sold in, in, in Saigon, in, in French bookshops. You can get them. Uh, you can send them to Saigon. People can receive them. Sometimes they get held up for a few weeks, but they, 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 they pass through. Uh, I've never been invited, obviously, to talk about those books in Vietnam. Um, the last time I, I was in Vietnam was in, in the north in, nine, in 2013 to do the final research for this book and to meet uh, three uh, former Vietnamese uh, Vietnamese officers from the, learned, the, from the lettered class uh, and uh, all three of them. All three of them, no, especially two of them. Without me, for once, I, 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 I listened and, and shut up, you know, not like now. Um, and I, I, I was there to hear them. And I didn't prompt them at all. And two of them said to me, after some time, all our troubles began when the Chinese Maoists got involved in the Viet Minh and took over things, took things over and sort of um, made us adopt their, their land reform and their doctrine and the atmosphere changed overnight and became terrible and it's still going on now that's what they told me you know so that that was the last time i went and now as you know on facebook i'm i'm quite active on facebook this is the lonely man's uh, pastime the lonely worker's pastime and i've noticed that there for the for the other book, sometimes I'd be I'd be quite vocal, you know. I sort of calmed down, but I would get flak. Do you know the word flak? Um, yeah. Anti-aircraft. Yep. From these guys posing under a false uh, identity, a fake French name or a fake American name, who are probably in Hanoi, behind a uh, a laptop. And who were charged? Who, who were? Their mission was to keep an eye on what was being said on the on the social networks. And so I would be criticized by these guys who would say things like, "How can? How dare you um, question the victory of the Vietnamese people in 1954?" And I would say, "Who said I was questioning? I never have I ever questioned that victory. Of course they won. What I'm questioning is the way." The story is being told by the official line, and every generation questions the the official storyline. And this is what I'm doing. But right now, completely complete silence. And I think perhaps that is a way of them for to try to pretend I'm, I don't exist. Perhaps I don't know. Maybe I'm. Maybe they don't care at all. And I'm. Yeah. And maybe they're just I'm, more open today. That I I don't know. Not the officials. I don't know. I don't think so. But maybe they don't care a fig about me, and I I'm, I just think I'm much more important than I really am. I don't know. I can't. Yeah. I have some some uh, fears about going back to Vietnam sometimes because you will you will have people who will tell you no, no problem, and others who will tell you be careful. You. You might be beaten up on, on some street corner by two civilian guys. You know? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I think that was very 15 years ago, 20 years ago. I don't think that that really exists today. I think if you're not loud about uh, propaganda coming from the West and you're not really in their face, uh, they 
you know, they typically are just very relaxed. And I think the people that run Vietnam today are very modern and it's opening up to a lot more academic freedom at the university level. The A lot of the kids that were coming from kids of government officials in the 90s and the 2000s were sent to the United States for Ivy League educations. They were going to really good schools and many of them returned home and, you know, really are making big influences in the government and in the private business sectors. So I think that there's a, there is reform, but it's very slow and very steady. It's not, they're not trying to overthrow the government. They're, you know, it's, it's working at, at a natural organic clip. I'm glad to hear that. I actually have cousins who went to study, who live in England now. This, this, the grandsons of this uncle of mine uh, in, in South Vietnam, who was a member of parliament uh, and who was in the National Liberation Front. One of his grandsons is living in Birmingham and, and one of his granddaughters went to study in, in Manchester, I think. So they, they speak English fluently. And I'm glad to hear what you're saying. I hope things evolve. Yeah, there's the pro- there's progression. There's not it's not at a standstill. One one not not at all. I was at the um, uh, U.S. Institute of Peace. Uh, I was on a panel discussion for for Vietnam Week uh, last week, and somebody asked about censorship and and Facebook and Twitter and all of these social media apps being censored by the government. And I I said, you know, there's a lot of progress, but if you don't like the way that these things are handled, these are things that eventually will work itself out. Um, it's not our house. It's not, it's our uncle's house. It's not our house. We can do whatever we want in our house and we can do whatever we want in our country and we can affect change the way we want and we can continue to grow the way we want. But when it comes to Vietnam, there is a progress. There's a method to what they do and it is slowly uh, reforming and changing. But there's no re- need to rush it. Uh, that's just my opinion. You know, uh, we 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 will get eventually to a place where uh, it'll resolve itself. I certainly hope so. I'm all for a, a peaceful evolution. I, I'm yeah. certainly not calling for a violent overturn, whatever it's called. Certainly not. Um, I hope it, it. I just hope that we will move towards a more pluralistic society. Yes, politically. Yeah. That's funny because uh, it seems to be uh, just uh, good sense. You need to have a voice uh, for uh, an opposition. You know, Mark. Uh, you know, I, I, uh, you know, we got to touch a little bit upon your early life and and the book, um, but I feel like I I can speak to you a lot about different uh, just historical points uh, throughout the history of Vietnam, but that re- would require a whole episode. Uh, of a student uh, to teacher uh, in 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 our situation, I think that I would need a lot more time to focus on different uh, aspects of, of Vietnamese uh, culture as it even relates to uh, French society and the diaspora in in in, in France. Well, you know, I uh, I have to do a lot of reading for all this, so I need to. I need to catch up on certain things. I, I don't pretend to know everything by any means. I just research when I do a subject. You know, there are huge uh, areas I know nothing about. Yeah, I but, I, uh, I I want to end on this question. What are you uh What are you writing next? What are you thinking about next? 
uh, after you know this job took me three years and uh, if you knew how much uh, my advance on rights was you you'd snicker uh, I actually received you, and this is general it's it's the the book world is like that unless you're someone really famous who sells a lot it's it's a product you know so you you get larger uh, advances on rights if you sell a lot, okay? If you don't, you just receive what they will give you. Yeah. And three, 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 three years of solid hard work, very fascinating hard work for 15,000 euros. So I let you calculate that. And I have to sell 6,333 copies for me to have um, Royalty. paid up. Those, that sound that was yeah. given to me and to expect royalties at the rate of two euros 31 cents per book sold once I have sold 6,333. This is the book world. I'm not complaining. This is how it happens. So, which, which makes me sort of reluctant to, uh, to run into a new job, which is going to take me a lot of time, or I, I must be able to control its length. This book wasn't supposed to be that long. Uh, I, I just got, not carried away, but I did this as it came along without much planning and a lot of uh, anxiety and fear along the, along the way, hoping it would not bore people to tears, you know. And if I do another one, it has to, if I want to survive, uh, it would have to be 110 pages, which was the original uh, mission. Yeah, something like that. And my publisher is is eager for me to do a new book because this book is working well. Uh, it's not a landslide, but you know, in 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 our conditions here, it, it's it's obtained great uh, critical acclaim. And he would like me to go back even earlier back to the, the the days of the conquest the conquest of indochina the late 19th century so i don't know for, for instance for the moment i'm working on a book which has nothing to do with vietnam it's about the beach the sea swimming pools well i will mention the swimming pool in saigon the the cercle sportif swimming pool where, where i used to go as a child but uh i'm i may Go back to the graphic novel because it's 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 a fascinating job. You, you you're very you don't earn a cent, but you control everything. You do everything from A to Z, which is hard work. But at least you don't have to rely on someone else. Right. You see what I mean? Yeah, I do. So it's pretty exhilarating, but really hard work, and it's a marathon. You know, it's, you're at it for for days. Yeah. Maybe the early conquest, but this time again, I want to show it from the Vietnamese side, um, principally, because the other side is known to the French reader, right, right, right. or better known. Well, Marcelino, thank you so much for coming on tonight. I know it's very late there, and I I value the work that you do because uh, you know I I know the 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 publishing world and and you know the advances are you know it's really bad, but we do it for the love of, of the, the culture and we do it for the love of history and, and all of the things that are creative about our lives. So I appreciate it. And um, I will, uh, you know, hope, hopefully everybody picks up the book. Thanks for your, 
thanks for your, for your talk. And, and I'm glad you're the first one I talked to. And I'm glad, sorry, I was nibbling something. I'm glad it's a Vietnamese guy. <laughs> because what I have instead is that I'm really happy um, when I meet up with a Vietnamese friend. You ask me if I feel Vietnamese. Well, I can tell you I really do when I meet up with a Vietnamese guy or yes. because there's a sort of immediate um, complicity. What's the word? Yes. Connection. Connection. We've been through these things and, and something I not necessarily, don't necessarily get with a not all these French friends I had. Right. So it was really starting with you. Thank you so much for the, for the opportunity. Have a wonderful evening. Same to you. Okay. Bye, Kenneth. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to The Vietnamese with Kenneth Nguyen. Special thanks to Brittany Tran, to Jane Nguyen, Catherine Nguyen, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Christo Trin. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Vietnamese Podcast. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. This is your invitation to the intersection of versatility and design. The kind of experience you can only find in a Lexus SUV. A feeling this empowering is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the versatility of the complete line of Lexus SUVs and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer.